Welcome to the Rumpus Room. Hey, everybody. How's it going out there? It's the boys from the Midwest back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room. And let's hit them with the takeaway message of the day. I want to talk about gratitude. And uh, so last week it was the Masters. And I think there was a, a really great event that happened. And uh, so the Hideki Matsuyama from Japan won in his caddy. You know, it's, t- it's a standard custom to go and grab the flag. His caddy grabbed the 18th flag and then he bowed to the golf course and there was a video of it and it like, it actually emotionally impacted me. And I just thought that was just such a classy example of gratitude. So it was very simple. And I know there's a lot of people talking about it in the, in the golf world, but I just thought it was a good example. And it really, for me, um, you know, it made me respect the Asian culture even more because you just realize, you know, where that comes from. And then I read a lot more about bowing and, you know, just the custom. And I just think that's a really, a really respectful thing to do. So I thought that was fantastic. And, and did you um, see how he bowed when he gave his putter back to his caddy too, Hideki? No. Okay. Same exact situation. But also in the presentation, so I believe in the final exchange in, between Hideki and his caddy, he approaches his caddy with his putter to give him back the club. Mm-hmm. And instead of having a closed grip on the putter, he holds his two pointer fingers out and rests the putter on top of his fingers. And then his caddy, and then exactly, it was like a sword. Mm -hmm. And then his caddy accepted the putter the exact same way they bow to each other and they walk off the golf course. And I was just like, again, it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, the intention, the uh, respect, it was just, it was really heartfelt. Yeah. something, Something that we don't see a lot in the American culture overall. No, that is something we can definitely learn, uh, learn from. And when you res- when you have that level of respect and reverence for uh, a place, your clubs, your caddy, uh, it's just to me, it seems like a great way to live. Honestly, I mean, talk about you know being appreciative of you're at the like pinnacle of the golf golfing world right now, and you're in those moments you're showing respect that just that really to me that is just very heartwarming it's great to hear you know and i'm sure the all the old men at augusta are loving it too <laughs> yeah, yeah um <laughs> oh my gosh yeah White hairs. totally <laughs> yeah. or gray hairs that go yeah. the, oh my god <laughs> Uh, the gray bushes up at the clubhouse just to watch in the Asian come in, you know, class act, absolute yep. class act. It was, yep, it is a class act. And, and the, you know, this year the masters did a good job of they, well, they honored Lee elder, who was the first male. And that was first male African-American. Yep. There's yeah. He first African-American to play in the, uh, playing the masters and great story. Then of course you got Gary. Did you see Gary player's son, like held a 
golf ball logo like right above its head and, and you know just kind of ruined it they were like i didn't, didn't i did not it. so what happened is gary players of you know he's a golfer sure, that's i know yep. old. he's very you know if you you get to know him he's extremely commercial and just kind of uh, kind of annoying you know kind of annoying old man and his son held the golf ball he was playing right above lee elder's head it was like a product placement for the entire ceremony like right yeah. over this guy's head and he's sitting in a wheelchair and it was just just that's, poor that's taste horrible over. so the, he's not allowed back at the masters lifetime wow. ban yeah but that yeah, would communicates that, such an important difference in like the american approach where you've got tiger you know, fist pumping and, you know, it's marketable. It's the story. It's I'm going to succeed. It's I'm on top. I conquered. And then you got this Japanese dude just being absolutely respectful across the entirety of the, um, the game. The experience. I, I, mm -hmm. It was such a great change for me. Um, and one thing that I really struggled with is watching the media's portrayal of Hideki because they kept on talking about how, you're the first Japanese man. You're the first Japanese man. You're the first Japanese man. And I felt like it was cheapening the accomplishment that that individual had because they wanted to turn it into like a marketable story. It's their story. It, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it wasn't about this guy who overcame amazing odds and just, you know, succeeded at a goal. It became, you know, the first Japanese player. So, so then what? Then what? What is that? I understand it's important for Japan for communicating to people that like you have a chance in golf. So anybody from that country might feel emboldened to play. And I, I want that message, obviously, to be to be present. But I also, you know, he's he's it's he it's more than just that. You know, it's not just about more. the first Japanese person to win the Masters. It's about it his totally cheapens the experience totally and it you know it's almost offensive for him you know it's like for hideki because like just like you said it negates all of the hard work i mean he's where's the where's the same interview where it's like how do you feel you know like what do you you know it, it just yep it wasn't about feel? him yeah and you know there's a lot of people there's a there's a couple golf podcasts that they just completely De they despise the coverage on CBS because they said in an interview, when the interviewer asks a, asks a longer question than the answer of the pro, that's not a good question <laughs> yep. because these guys, all they care about is asking like a really in-depth conversation, which is just them talking for two minutes, which is like, ask him how you feel. You know, it's an amazing moment. Just let him, you know, get emotional and that's all we like need. So, yeah. And did you hear his response to the question, which was, how do you feel about being the first Japanese person to win the masters? He said, I feel happy. That was his answer. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, aren't you going to, you know, go into more detail and make this a story about all of Japan and something that I can put on a paper. Aren't you going to make me, a better person by answering my question in a really fanciful way. And he was just like, no, I'm not. And I, again, I was just like, God damn it, Jim Nance, shut up. Yep. Yeah, exactly. 
just shut up. And that's, that's where, you know, we talked a little bit about the masters coverage. So what I really enjoyed and so masters.com, you could watch everything. There was no commercials and you could tell what they did differently than the broadcast is they had a lot more dead space. So you would listen to the caddies and the uh, players talk to each other and they weren't filling in every moment. Like here's Dustin Johnson hole number six, he's hitting an eight iron and they have all that stuff on the, like in your, you can see it. So they weren't that the analysts weren't describing what they can, like what everybody's looking at, you know, they were adding in interesting details and so masters.com, I was joking with Erica, like we just had, we had two different screens up. One of them was the coverage and then we had the broadcast and you would just see how crappy the broadcast was the entire time. <laughs> I mean, it was horrible. They were like at a five minute delay on a lot of the, a lot of the shots. And yeah. And they this, just, they try to make it so much more mass market appeal rather than, mm-hmm. um, and, and it may be that I'm a more experienced viewer, so I have a distaste for that. I don't know what it is, but it, it certainly was not appealing. No, when just, I don't, I think they're doing it wrong. You know, I think they're, they're missing it because, you know, again, I think this is just people, I mean, they have horrible data and feedback from TV on do people like it or not. I mean, nobody's going to tell you in a focus group if they like it. Like all you have is ratings and the number of people that watch, you know, you don't have a lot of feedback. So they're, they're just, they're like basically not, they don't listen to anything. And so there's not been a lot of changes. I mean, the biggest change in a golf, I mean, there's a lot of people that compare formula one to golf and are just like formula one is kicking their ass basically. I mean, Formula so, One has getting fans and they're doing great documentaries on Netflix. And yeah, I'm so happy you brought up Formula One because <laughs> Lewis Hamilton has the exact same approach as Hideki in terms of the gratefulness. So you got Max Verstappen, who is the Tiger Woods. He's the young gun, emotional, pissed off, hothead. And it's remarkable to watch Lewis Hamilton in his interactions because he's the most humble person I think I've ever seen in a major sporting event. He wins a race and everybody on the radio is like, Lewis, great job. And he goes, oh, his reaction every single time is, oh, thanks, guys. So much thanks, everybody. Everybody back at the factory. Everybody in the garage, thank you so much for what you've done. This was a team effort, and it was top-notch all weekend. Thank you. That's what he says. It's not like I won the race and whatever, and this guy is well on his way to being the undisputed Formula One, the best driver of all time, basically. Really the best ever, huh? Yeah, he's, he's, he's broken Michael Schumacher's record for most wins, and if he wins the um, – uh, the driver championship at the end of this year, it'll be undisputed because him and Michael both have six, I believe right now. And if he wins mm-hmm. this or they both have seven and if he wins it, he'll have eight. It's something like that. And yeah, so it's like the Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas majors thing like that. Yep. Yep. And 
that that gratitude is just so so apparent with Lewis in every and it's not a it's not a show. I've always been watching it like what trying to see if there's ever a break in his approach. And there never is. Never once has I, have I ever heard him utter anything about like himself or you know um take credit for things which is interesting because some of the extreme formula one analysts think that on the track he drives kind of not above bar yeah yeah some people think that lewis drives somewhat um like i guess childish on the track sometimes and then he gets the benefit of the doubt by being the best um and i don't know enough about the rules of engagement as far as like how you put your car on the track and how you cut people off and there's certain rules that you have to adhere to that like only the people who really understand like basically the drivers you know the drivers yeah like are you going to endanger the other person with this move and you know like you know i i watched it it seems like there there are instances where drivers can basically like saying you're I'm going to like the only way you survive is either you flip and crash into me or you go off the track. You know, it's like those things, they box you out or something like that. Yep. So um, that would be the only knock on Lewis's character. And I, I unfortunately am not knowledgeable of the sport enough to, to really comment on that, but I have heard people say that. So that's why I've always been kind of watching Lewis to be like, is he ever going to, is he ever going to not behave like this? And, and it seems to be, at least media facing it's an extremely consistent grateful approach and and he's he's going to be the best of all time at this point well one of the things so i watched a documentary on lewis and he has a brother that has had spina bifida or something so his brother you know can't walk like a normal you know normal uh a normal person and so he's had some issues but Lewis support. So his brother basically like would kick Lewis's butt in all the video games racing wise, you know, and like they grew up racing and it was a really, it's a really good documentary because you do see Lewis and his brother and Lewis comes to, so his brother's now was now racing in, you know, his own races in real cars and, you know, starting to do it and he couldn't, he wasn't doing as good, but Lewis was like showing up and super supportive. And like, you can feel the love between those two guys. Cause they just supported each other no matter what. And like, you just, you kind of get the sense of how like Lewis is a good natured person by seeing the way he behaves with his brother, you know, how accepting he is. And, you know, it does, it just says a lot about people when they, you know, have these experiences with siblings or people around them and they're just so accepting, you know, I think those situations can be difficult, but I do think they're really character building. Um, and you like Hideki, you become grateful for just having the skills you can have. And, you know, you can just see that. And it's really, it was really, I, you know, I looked, I came away thinking like, this is really a good person, you know, a good guy, which is obviously what they wanted me to feel, but yeah a message received (laughs) i got it (laughs) but it's it's nice though when you when you see a person at the pinnacle of something and you you know it's a stark it's a stark contrast to like i mean everybody knows the tiger woods story holy cripes you know 
Well, the NBA. I mean, you oh, know, the NBA. Holy crap!s It's the worst. Like the NBA is the worst. Football's kind of bad. You know, you get a little more teamwork in football. The NBA is just the worst. Those guys are just. It's tough to watch. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because the NBA has invented essentially what is the modern free agency and, you know, this model of like the super team and the commercializable, you know, Brooklyn Nets versus the Lakers. The NBA has done an amazing job inventing their sport to compete with football. And it's a good example of like the innovation occurs by the people who are in the back actually doing it, playing the like. NFL is obviously in the front of sports. The NBA is, you know, probably number two, maybe baseball, because baseball is kind of on the down. But the NBA is out there trying to contend, and they are the ones, like, writing the new rules of engagement as far as, like, player contracts and stuff like that. So there's some interesting innovation in the NBA. But, yeah, I I'm I agree with you. It's uh, the, the character thing. You know, when you are playing that game, which is we're competing to be the consumable, the most mass market appealable sport, which I actually think on a national on an international level, the NBA has more sway than the NFL. It'd be interesting to see if overall like soccer is the most popular. It's gotta be. I'm sure it is. Well, like NASCAR is better than the NFL and the NBA in terms of like monetarily, you know, in terms of like Overall revenue that. and consumption. Uh, yeah, that's right. I yeah. believe the NASCAR is the most consumed yeah. sporting event in the United States. But I think soccer is definitely bigger than the NFL. I mean, the NFL has done a fantastic job of wedding themselves to a day and then getting identity with a town and a city and a place and a team. You know, they've done an awesome job with that identity thing, which the NBA has not done a good job of. They kind of they are going after, I, I think their approach is different in the NFL where it is like players, you know, like I love LeBron James or I'm a, you know, and they, you kind of, it's a, it's an interesting thing. They're all trying to different, you know, different approach, but it's fascinating. It, it, it's extremely fascinating. And um, so tragedy struck, uh, I believe South Carolina when that f- former NFL player, murdered his wife and a bunch of people and shot himself. Just another relic of the danger that that sport has in the long-term implications of repeated head trauma. Holy cow. Did you hear about that? I did. It's uh that is a, that is a, a difficult story. And I think concussions is something that will become a larger and larger and larger issue as we, as time goes on. Well, have you seen, um, the new pads that they put on players' helmets during practice? No. In the college? No, college teams. I just saw a photo of, like, college teams are putting a secondary round of pads on the top of the hard shell. So they wear these helmets that then have, like, a ton of little cushions on top. And it's just another thing that's like, man... I respect it, but it's scary to watch and and think of the reason that they're doing it is because we're trying to protect our kids from repeated head trauma. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, and you know, I've ha- I've ha- I've been lucky enough because I've known some people uh, that have access to the Boston University study brain scan images. They're bad. 
mean, it's their brain has shrunk and, you know, by it's like a fifth of the size, you know, and it's oh. like a normal brain. It's just like it is a completely different looking species. And these people that have CTE, it is a whole it's a, it's a very difficult thing to deal with. And I think, like you said, they're just starting to understand the impacts of this head trauma. And it's not just like you know, like a full out concussion, you know, they were talking about like being, getting your bell rung where your head is like woozy, which being two former football players, that's happened to us. Um, so I think that's really scary. And I, the one thing comment on that is Joe Namath did say he did some type of therapy where they tried to rehydrate his brain or something like that in Florida. Cause he said he was supremely freaked out by this. Cause he said a couple of his linemen, committed suicide and you know had some serious implications and he said he did some new treatment which apparently is like re obviously i don't know what it is but he said it's he feels way better after it it was like an immediate benefit and they they showed the scan changes from him so yeah the concussion thing freaky because i played uh college football so (laughs) that's something i'm I'm very aware of. Well, and that shows a very kind of fascinating perspective change that some people have, which is, okay, I get that there are inherent risks in football. And I'm not saying that nobody should ever play the game ever again, because people should just be aware of the risks. Cause like in formula one, people die, you know, that happens. Um, it hasn't happened recent because of innovation in the sport, but um, I guess last year, there was a uh, Formula Two driver who was killed um, in uh, in an ac- in a driving accident. Antoine, um, I can't recall his name, Frenchman. But um, so there are obviously inherent risks in everything we do, and it's it's interesting to think about because I was chatting with this extreme libertarian from Dallas who was very much one of those guys who was like pollute the world do whatever, because I believe in human ability to problem solve. And so I don't care about climate change because I believe that we're going to solve that issue. So we put, so we shouldn't put limits on things. And that was, that's kind of like uh, the Namath story is a good example of like modern medical innovation that can enable some of this kind of risky behavior. And I think it speaks to like, two massively different schools of thought, which is basically like, do you believe in the human being's ability to adapt and innovate? Or do you fundamentally believe that you know better than other people? Right? So like, I should tell you what to do or not to do. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just a, it's a question as old as time, because, you know, I don't, I feel like I've kind of, you know, we obviously are talking shit about stuff right now, right? You know, we're talking about things that we didn't like about the media coverage. Um, and, and you know, there's kind of like this perspective, which is particularly, you know, command and control as far as we're going to have limits on environmental regulation. We're going to do these things to protect and versus like, well, what if you just let everybody free reign and then you deal with the ramifications of those actions? And 
he was very much in that camp and I've never met anybody that was that aggressively in that camp, which was like, let the bad shit happen and we'll just deal with the fallout. Mm -hmm. Yep. I've, I've, you know, like I've heard that same climate argument where people have said, um, you know, we can deal with the CO2. We need to be smarter about it. We need to, we need to incent people to figure that problem out. You know, we need to pay people for doing that type of waste removal. So yeah, that's, it's a, it's a completely, I think, shift change in like what you like what you value and that's i think you what you said it best is like we are struggling with that those two different schools of thought and i think we will always struggle with that and i i really they're just people fundamentally are either you know they're on one side or the other and i think it's really difficult for a lot of people to change between those two well, and we end up with this adversarial approach for people in either of these camps, because obviously we're, you know, they're fighting all of the time over which strategy is better. And I don't, I don't have an answer for that, but I want to talk about an interesting um, effect that is sort of related, which is this kind of caged animal approach. And um, I'm seeing this in my work um, where when encountering an individual with a differing viewpoint, as you back them into a corner with data or with insights or with reasons to do a particular thing that is different than their opinion, um, a, you know, when you back an animal into a corner, it gets way more aggressive. And I've seen the You're fallout. Right. Yeah, I've seen the fallout personally where you're perhaps you know, somebody is realizing that they're wrong, they're in a corner, and they're lashing out much more aggressively um, because it's getting so much more clear that they're wrong. And I was talking about this with a coworker of mine of like, am I really that bad at communicating ideas such that I create this response in people around me? Because obviously I did or we have not taken the right approach because now we're in this sort of place where we're the oppressor pushing somebody into a corner. And I was trying, we were kind of like just talking about it and like, what did we do wrong that we got to this point? Because we both realized that like, this is not good. And it's, it's a, it's a zero sum game because dirt is being slung and, the issues are not being addressed because we're spending so much time fighting each other rather than fighting the problem. And I, I just don't know if you have any experience or insight into like how to avoid getting to that adversarial situation, because I, I'd be very curious to hear. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've learned and I've thought a lot about that. So being the Holy grail and the short answer is making it, somebody else's idea which is an extremely yes. complicated <laughs> thing and to do because people don't like to be pushed in a certain direction they like to you know kind of think that they have control over where they're going and you know making a decision make when people make decisions they want to feel like they own it they have autonomy because the moment you push something down on them the moment they they'll get back at you i mean they will resist somehow or find like oh you screwed up here 
you know, like that type of thing, they're constantly looking for that reinforcement that, you know, either they knew better. So one thing that helps me, and I've been dealing with this a lot uh, in the last, I think, two to three months and we changed our entire sales process because of this is instead of getting up and telling everybody we have this great product and we're super smart and we've done all this research and look at all the results. We're so great. I spend the first 20 to 30 minutes asking very detailed questions about their process and just, it's called discovery or research meeting. And you, what this does is I want to understand what they think, what they think the problems are, you know, what they think about their own process. And then it's, it's you know, you got to do it. It's difficult, but you have to do it, you know, kind of treading lightly where it's very, you know, you're very interested and you don't deliver an opinion the entire time. You know, you just let them talk. And of course, what you're trying to do is get them to see certain things that are wrong you know, with their process and, you know, simple questions like, you know, if you could have it better, what would you be doing? You know, where you get frustrated with this process? Oh, that frustrates you. Can you explain that a little bit more? And it's just kind of navigating that way. And I found a fundamental shift in my meetings <laughs> because of this. Um, because, you know, I've got a partner who's, who's a very educated, experienced, you know, and, lectures and you know all this stuff where we've had to change our process up and understand how do we change people's minds because people will walk away and say oh that was a great meeting and then not do anything you know because they're intimidated or well you know number of reasons but i've learned i think the best way and it's just it's so hard to think about that so that's that's the i think the one thing that when i notice i've i've kind of got this caged animal I didn't do that. <laughs> and we had a meeting where there was a caged animal a couple months ago who was uh, very scared of our intimidated by our model or our, our plan because it basically kind of slapped. It, it was, it was uh, the opposite of what they believed. And I did not do a good enough job around opening them up at the beginning of the meeting and understanding why their model was successful, what wasn't success, you know, like that type of thing. It just, it, that effort does pay dividends in the long run. And it's really just creating trust between two people. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's kind of my, you know, again, every one of these is very nuanced and detailed. So it's really hard to have like, you know, this is the final answer, but that's kind of the process that I've, I've figured out. But again, I am still trying to learn. I am still trying to learn, you know, it's really complicated. Yeah. And the, the obvious answer is you make them the hero, right? You, mm -hmm. you yep. make them have it be their idea or whatever. And what I'm noticing in this current situation is that that ship has sailed. <laughs> yeah. <know>? Like, <laughs> there is, there's no going back. <laughs> so, um, in certain and like you said, I I'd be curious. Do you think your ship has already sailed, or do you think you can salvage that relationship? No, I can go back and salvage it, and I've been thinking about that a lot, how to do it. And I think it's going back and honoring the tenets that we both believe in. So, 
you know, I read the book Difficult Conversations, which I would recommend to anybody that's, you know, struggling or having issues. And it's getting back the intention where you both are in the same intention and coming back to what do we both believe is true? You know, like that's a good way to kind of basically like build that we're working on this together instead of, you know, my, me versus you. It's like, okay, what do we both believe is true? You know, like starting there. And once you establish those things, then you move on to, okay, so we know this is true and really like, we really hammer that one. Okay. So now how do we move? What's okay. So here's a thing that is, it's not the hot topic item. You kind of go, you go, you know, cold to hot. So hit these items that may be easier. And, and that's what I've seen work, but yeah, the farther along you go, some it's even harder and harder. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And this but is a, this is ahead. a uh, year and a half of laid ground and, uh, <laughs> I don't know how the reconciliation is going to occur, but if it does occur, um, it will take immense humility and open conversations and trust, like you said. And I hope that in this situation it occurs. Um, I also, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know that it will. Um, there's also, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze sort of a thing. And, um, at this point, um, I guess I'm putting my money elsewhere. <laughs> well, and you know, and quite honestly, there are some people that just can't get over it and you just can't waste your time. You know, you can't, yeah. there are people that are so stuck in what they believe, you know, oftentimes people say you, you gain more by cutting somebody than by like sticking them, sticking around with them. You know, it's like, that's, you, you got to cut bait at some point and move yep. on. Sometimes these, you just got to snap the line. all right i i caught a rock and i'm not getting it out of here i can sit and do this all day i really like that jig but i got six other ones sitting right here (laughs) and sure it is going to be challenging for me to retie this knot because it's raining and it's 45 degrees and it's freezing but i'm going to do it anyways because that what's the color that we what's the color that we use oh you're not supposed to tell people what colors you use no, yeah. So uh, I, I guess we're, yeah. Well, I mean, you're you're the master of uh, of uh, this most recent fishing outage. Holy cow! I was hardly reeling them in, but you were just slaughtering. Well, it's when you hit the right, you know, I think it has to do with jig color. It really does. And just well, like and if, depth, depth, jig color, and then sometimes you just lock into a zone. You know, I yeah. you just lock into a zone of like casting, feeling the bite, and then. I mean, it's just, it's a flow thing. Definitely. Yeah. We've had a lot of fun fishing. I think fishing is a, it's a great sport. I'll uh, never forget the comment when you were catching fish and I was on a dry spell and then I finally caught a fish and you just turned to me with a big grin on your face and say, it's fun when you execute, execute strategy. (laughs) And, And I was like, Yes, it is. <laughs> I just always remember that whenever I have like a small success or whatever it is, or even a big success, I always kind of chuckle about like how it's fun to execute strategy. And you, uh, it's just, it's burned into my mind. It was a very fond memory. Well, good. I'm glad that was one of those, uh, things that just kind of falls out of your mouth. You know, you don't, <laughs> 
sometimes those are the best comments is when it just, uh, it happens in the moment. Absolutely. So um, and, and on this vein of, you know, uh, similarly, I want to talk about this new social media meme that is coming out, which is an extraordinarily, um, shall we say representative, um, meme um which is called white boy summer are you familiar with white boy summer i am not i am not white boy summer is something that is being propagated by the uh social media giants like barstool old row these type of predominantly white male institutions and Mm -hmm. There was just a song that was released by a white male rapper that's called White Boy Summer. And it's getting a lot of play. Some people are, going, are calling it the anthem of the year. And um, what were you going to say? I just said, whoa. Yes. That's big. It is big. And I think it is a fascinating like cultural. And again, I just keep coming back to the word meme because I can't think of anything better to describe it that is very much this sort of caged animal approach where obviously white men have been the subject of a lot of ridicule in the past and you know whether or not it's just and undue it doesn't matter you know i'm sure there's there's truth to everything how much truth to it is always subject for opinion but um i feel it's very much a response and like a reclaiming of the white male identity And I'm what's interesting is it's become this meme. um, And I think it's obviously, you know, the caged animal approach of like, we're going to lash out and we're going to own being a white male, but it's called white boy summer. So it just, it's something that I, I don't really know how to approach, but I feel like it's sort of an incorrect reaction to the diversity movement where now all of a sudden you're going to have, you know, white 20 year olds at the bar or, you know, at the rooftop pool getting hammered going, it's white boy summer, blah, blah, blah. And I believe it's just going to be a total step back for us. Oh, it for sure will. It for sure will. It's these type of, you know, I don't know what, what you call it. Like they, now's the moment to, there's a lot of frustration or a lot of, you know, just under undercurrent, and to try to step in and, you know, profit off of that, you know, it's like, I think every type of movement, whether it's the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement has these type of undercurrents that just kind of almost ruin a lot of the progress that you would hope would happen. Yeah. Um, and the, I think the fallout isn't, is yet to be seen of white boy summer, but um, I, I anticipate that it's not going to breed top character from young white men. <laughs> That's just a, just a hypothesis. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. It's Tom Hanks' son. Is it? Yeah. Really? He's that rapper? Chet. Chet yeah. Hanks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're totally right about the profitability thing. And um, 
that that's one of the reasons I think that it's important that we, you know, talk about male development overall, because white boy summer is just an example of, um, I think, a, a, a ship without a rudder, really, you know, um, I think there's been so much progress. Um, and like, let's talk about Asian Americans, as far as you know, the, the Asian hate, that's just deplorable. And Asians have been another group that like haven't had the support of the diversity movement. So I'm, I'm happy that people are having the discussion about Asian Americans. It's also really interesting that Hideki has won the masters at the same time. Um, and we are over here just admiring the uh, depth <laughs> and the contemplation of Asian cultures. Um, yeah. Well, you can learn so many things from these, from different cultures. And I think we need to do a better job of appreciating other cultures and learning from them. Yeah. And, and then the, you know, this, this sort of like white boy summer movement seeks to give identity and, you know um, it's a rallying cry for young men to feel like, you know, they have a place in the world, which are young white men really, um, because I believe that young white men have um, you know, old white men, there's obviously a lot of successes and say what you want about the barriers that they've had, or, you know, the, the, um, the advantages that they've had and, you know, the undue barriers to other places, like that's obvious, you know, that's been, you know, it's not a good thing, but um, young men, I would say in particular, who've grown up in this age of um, white men being demonized. And um, so the response is, you know, white boy summer, here's this, this movement to try and give these young adults some sort of identity. And um, I just hope that young guys can, you know, not, regress into more adolescent behavior because of it and it just feels like a step sort of in the and and i could be wrong this could be a crotchety old white boy talking about you know the things we're moving, that the young, we're moving out of the we're moving out of that the white boy summer stage you know we're, we're now into the it was better when we were around type um but i i do think your point is really it's it's important because i think there is a lot of I think painting the white male as a villain and that's, I don't think that's fair to paint anybody as a villain in any of this. You know, there's, it's like, why does there always need to be a villain? You know, we're just really, we have to make somebody responsible for it. Yeah. It's like, you know, there are certain people that are at fault, but it's, that's such a, it's so hard to make it like this group of people. I'm going to make a judgment on everybody because of a few people. You know, it's just like, it's just more of that happening. Um, and that just well, isn't going to benefit anybody. I mean, you see the response and it's just unfair to everybody. It is. And um, I, uh, I think it's so important now um, that young men have good father figures and good mentors and good um influences in their lives to steer the ship in the right direction, you know, individually. And um, I hope that, you know, the, this podcast and everything that I do can, can be a beacon for, um, you know, and, and a lot of what you do as well for young men, because I do feel like we have got a huge opportunity as far as making sure that young men um, succeed in the world. And the role of the male is, is, you know, is expanded in a way that is 
serving to everybody, not just themselves. And it, we get out of this idea that like men are self-serving and doing it for themselves. But like, you know, we get back to this, this sort of the true core values of masculinity. And, you know, um, according to Jordan Peterson, that is like protector, you know, that's like creating a safe environment for people. And I feel like men have historically, you know, it's been, it's been apparent where this power has been abused, the sexual assaults, the sexual scandals. Um, and I think there's just a huge opportunity for young men and old men really today to be that beacon of what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. I think we need just, we need to get back to what is, what are good male, um, you know, male representatives and how do we, how do we, uh, you know, how do we navigate life? And it's difficult and you have to have influences from both female and male and masculine and feminine. And, you know, we, it, we, it's just a very important time. And I think you hit it really. I mean, that's, I think what we're trying to do is how, how do we navigate this as a male, you know, navigating as a, you know, a, a person. And that's just, that's difficult. And it's hard to see that. And the, with the media today, it's really clouded and it's really, there's so much information out there. It's hard to like instill into one area and say, okay, these are things I should be reading. I should be thinking about, you know, it's just, and I think that's kind of what we've, we've, um, we've talked a lot about is there's just, there's not a really good place for that. And now that we're both, uh, we both have boys, we have a little bit more, more going to be raising boys. We have even a little bit more ammo, you know, a little bit more motivation too. That's exactly why I'm thinking about it so much more now is I think about how am I going to raise my son in a way that, you know, is, is, is optimal for the times and for his development, you know? Um, And it's just so important to, uh, to be educated on what are the, what are the principles that help, you know, a young man develop. And, you know, I think we, commented on roughhouse play as being important, but um, one fascinating kind of perspective that I love to return to is this idea of masculine and feminine energy and what is the pure core of masculinity and what is the pure core of femininity. And every person has a mix of masculine and feminine energy. I'm not saying all men are totally masculine and females are totally feminine. It's as a male, you have a feminine energy. And as a female, you have some masculine energy. Some, um, And I think a really great way to assess whether or not your partner is going to be good for you is to look at your relative levels of masculine and feminine energy and assess theirs and think, is this going to be a compliment to myself long-term? Is this going to be sustainable? Because if you throw too much you know, two more masculine people or two more feminine people in a relationship, you're going to see some fireworks. You're going to, you know, there's going to be some fallout. Um, so that's yep. been, you know, I, and I feel like you have that with your partner. I feel like I have that with my partner. I feel like a lot of the relationships that last um, are a decent balance on both sides in terms of like bringing what the other lacks in the relationship. Yep. And that, like, I think it goes back to attraction and, you know, how, you know, who, 
who are you attracted to? What qualities are you attracted about? What work well for you? And I think that, you know, like we talk about masculine and feminine, I think how I've, it's helped me understand it is like, there's a spectrum. There's like, you got masculine on one side, you got feminine on the other side. And, you know, you can just, you know, it doesn't matter where you fall. It just, that's just what I think you maybe have more masculine tendencies or you're exactly in the middle and you don't, you know, it's like, there's just different ways in finding your match or your partner. Um, I think we've found, we've been lucky um, to find people that are, you know, balance us out and get us, you know, closer to kind of the center and not everything's gonna be perfect, but I do think unsuccessful relationships I've been in have been mismanaged or mismatched on that spectrum. I've noticed that, you know, whether it's too, too feminine or too masculine, you know, it just is, uh, that's one thing that has helped me navigate. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a good foundation for a relationship. And we've been very fortunate to have outstanding examples of that balance in our life. So, um, that's helped us have success is to be able to see that work, which is really critical to have a role model to, you know, model that type of behavior, because I wouldn't expect people to just figure that out, you know, all the time. Um, it's hard to hear in a podcast too. It's like, you know, seeing it is so, is an easier way to learn too. So surrounding yourself with, you know, solid couples that are older, you know, I think that's a great way, you know, learning about it's good, but then being able to identify that in other people is very important. So I think you're right. That's really a good, good point. And one interesting way to think about masculine and feminine energy uh, comes from another Eastern tradition. Um, call it Tantra, which is uh, essentially kind of a founding, you know, there's been various like, you know, contemplative religions that have been either affiliated to or founded off, off this idea, you know, of um, masculine and feminine energy. And one way to think about what is pure masculinity and what is pure femininity. And um, in the Hindu tradition, I believe they associate these ideas with particular gods. They call them Shiva and Shakti. Shiva is um, the masculine energy, which is pure masculinity. And a way to think about it is it is the um, illuminating awareness that exists. So if you put yourself in a dark room and that room is filled with stuff in terms of, you know, whatever, you're in this room, but it's pitch black. All of the stuff is the femininity. It's the energy, it's the matter, it's the, it's the movement, it's the thing. It is the, it's the, it's the great creative force of life that is existing in this room. It's all of the things, it's movement, it's dance, it's creation. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's all the stuff, but without that awareness, without that illuminating light, there can be no interplay because none of it can be identified. None of it can be realized because without the awareness of the fact that stuff exists, nothing is there. All you have is just what is there. So I've heard masculine energy as being described as like pure awareness. Mm-hmm. And then what I love about 
the translation to Jordan Peterson is when he's talking about like the protector, what you're actually talking about is boundaries. What you're talking about is the, the safe space in which things can be identified. You're talking about the protection. You're talking about the barriers. You're talking about the, you know, do you know what I mean? Yes. That is the, like establishing like a, like an environment where you can you know, enjoy and do those things that's safe, that you feel comfortable so you can fully express this energy. Yep. I think that's, that's, that's kind exactly of what I've it. interpreted as. That's exactly it. And for me, that is just such an easier way to think about masculinity and femininity because it takes it out of the gender roles as far as, you know, you're supposed to be a certain way. And then when you apply that principle, if femininity is, you know, the expression is the stuff is the movement is the creative force is the life force. Then it, it, I feel like it's, you know, so much more accessible than being like, Oh, women are supposed to be, you know, X, Y, Z this way. Um, mm-hmm. But pure feminine energy is, you know, that different thing. And then, and then you can see how the gender, like the purest form of gender roles kind of emerges. But I, I feel like thinking about it in those terms just allows one to not be um, burdened by like our societal or like kind of preconceived notions of what a man or a woman should be. Yep. I, I think that's a very healthy way of discussing it in, in more of an objective way rather than a emotionally you know it's just there's so much emotion that goes into the gender and the uh i think energy is a great way to think of it and i you know there's just so much to be said for the eastern traditions because they've been around for so long and it has stood the test of time so you think of these you know really old stories and truisms that come through and you know, it's, it's something to be said. And I think, you know, you've done, a, you know, it sounds like a fair share of studying these traditions and, you know, you've spent a lot of time in yoga and, you know, I've, I've uh, continually enjoyed learning more about it. And I think, you know, like the bow was a great, like kind of re reinvigorating of that, you know, that awareness that, you know, that, that, that's a great way to win. And I think the energy is just another really good, really good way to think about some of the problems we're discussing, you know, socially, you know, and struggling with. Yeah. It can um, perhaps be a rudder that we can return to and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, steering ships in, uh, in, in worthwhile directions. Uh, And uh, that's what you'll get at the rumpus room podcast. So uh, that's all we got for you today, folks. Tune in next week when we'll be back kicking it here in the rumpus room. (laughs)